Dear loved ones, I draw your attention this morning to John's Gospel, John chapter 14. We'll be looking at the first 14 verses of that chapter, John 14, 1 through 14, and you'll find that on page 763 if you're using a copy of the scripture under the seat in front of you. We've been looking at a series the last few weeks on our need to gossip the gospel, to share the good news. Those that have been given this gospel of grace, it is ours now to give away, to communicate to others that the church ought to see individuals coming to saving faith because saints like us are in the world gossiping the gospel of grace, the very thing that's been given to us. There's always controversy between um, sharing the gospel in word and sharing the gospel in deed. For some reason, we want to say it is this or that. We look at various quotes and we say, the gospel is not just giving a, a living a life in front of them, but it's actually speaking of the hope that we have. And then others will say, it's all about speaking of the hope and it has nothing to do with the sharing through our living as well. This passage, my friends, is going to clearly help us understand that it is word and deed together. It is the life that we are living by, by receiving the gospel of grace that now draws others to, our, to us that we might share that same gospel as well. It is word and deed together, and it comes to us from no other than our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wonder this, here's my question for you that I like to begin with every Lord's Day as we think about the passage in front of us. Is the life that you are living actually displaying this gospel of grace to others so much so that your life is not filled with anxiety and worry and trouble and fear and doubt, but you are communicating the gospel in a Christian life and coming alongside that life and sharing the gospel in word as well. That's the, that's the question Jesus asks of his disciples. It's the question that he asks of us today. So let's give our full attention then to the reading and the preaching of God's word. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been with you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me 
will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord and what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Our Father, would you open our eyes now to behold beautiful, wonderful things. Would you speak to us by the power of your Spirit through your holy, infallible, and inerrant word. And then by that same Spirit, equip us in word and deed to gossip the gospel of grace, that very thing that you've given to us. Do that for your own glory's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please, friends, be seated. Have you ever bought any furniture from Ikea? Yeah. I've had two daughters that have gone off to college. That's, uh, that's a college delight right there to find that cheap furniture. But if you're like me, it always ends up like this. You know, you buy some hutch that's about as big as this pulpit right up here, and it comes in a box about that deep and about that big and about that wide. There is not a fraction of a centimeter of a square whatever in that box of empty space. They have gotten it down to a fine art of packing up all that furniture. The problem is the instruction booklet is about that thick. And you have to put all of those pieces down on the floor and then put them all together to make that hutch that ends up being about as big as this pulpit. Jennifer bought some stuff for her art room in our house. She's teaching private art lessons and we have this hutch there in there with wheels and drawers and all of this stuff. And so we went to Ikea and we bought it and I brought it home and I laid it all out and you know instructions are for wimps that you know if all else fails you read the instructions I got this thing I can I can tell lay out all of the pieces and you start putting that thing together and then it gives you that little bitty wooden dowel rod you know and you got to drive that into that little bitty circular hole and you start to drive that thing or you're going to try to push it in and it won't go all the way in God, they could have cut the hole a lot bigger than this. This hole is way too small. So I go out to the garage and I get a hammer and bang, bang, I bang that thing straight in. Because I know this is the way it's supposed to be. They just did it wrong. But then I get to that, st- that stage in the, in the instruction booklet that says, now flip over that chest. And so I flip it over and I set it upright and I walk, away, or walk around to the other side and there it is. That unfinished shelf that's going right across the center, you know. That's supposed to be on the back side where it's hidden instead of on the front side. And so now I've got this beautiful little shelf, or a beautiful little hutch, and it's got an unfinished shelf going across the front. And if I had just done what the instructions said, I would have done it the right way. Because there's only one way to put IKEA furniture together. And that is following the instruction manual to a T. And then it comes out beautifully. Well, I didn't do it that way. And you know, my friends, many times we don't do that that way in our Christian life either. We have yet again in this passage another one of Jesus' I Am passages. We looked at one last week, I Am the Good Shepherd. And now today we have another one, the seventh of eight, if you count eight of the I am that I am passages, but seven of eight of the I am passages where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father 
but by me. Jesus makes a very bold statement, a very bold claim, that there is only one way for us to get to heaven. There's only one way, and that is to follow to a T the instruction manual that we have been given, his holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Gandhi once said this, the need of the movement is not one religion. The need of the movement is not one religion, but mutual respect and tolerance for all of the different religions. Now that sounds so lovely, doesn't it? That sounds so nice. That sounds so tolerant. And we all in some way in our culture that we live in today kind of embrace that thought or many people do, that all roads lead to one place. We may call our supreme being one name, and somebody else may call their supreme being another name, but all roads lead to heaven, all roads lead to the same place. That sounds so nice, that sounds so tolerant, that sounds so loving, but that is so not biblical. That is not what the Bible says. And so when we come along in our gospel proclamation, in our gossiping the gospel, and we say, as we read in our Assurance of Pardoning Grace, in our gospel account, and now in this particular passage that we're studying, there is only one way to heaven, and that way is Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus Christ, what are we going to receive? You're not being very tolerant. That's not very nice. That's so close-minded. That's so narrow. But friends, listen. We are not the ones making the claim that there is only one way to heaven. Jesus is making the claim that there is only one way to heaven. Our Savior, the very one who died for us to set us free from the bondage to our sin, says there is only one way to heaven, and that way is through Him and through Him alone. And we can be off the mark completely, thinking nothing about Jesus, or we can be one little bitty click off, one little bitty shelf in the whole hutch that has no stain on it, and yet the whole rest of the hutch has stain and it looks beautiful, and we can still be apart from saving grace. Do you remember the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians? I am amazed, utterly amazed, he said, so quickly that you would abandon the gospel that we have given to you, faith in Jesus Christ alone, for another gospel which is really no gospel at all. You see, when Paul was dealing with false teachers, friends, I don't think he was dealing with something that was so blatantly different from what he was saying that it was like the difference between daylight and darkness. I think it was just one click away, one little bitty strip of unstained furniture on a whole big hutch of stained furniture, and yet Paul would say, by divine inspiration, because of what Jesus has said, that is no gospel at all. What do Muslims need? They need Jesus. What do Hindus need? They need Jesus. What do Jews need? They need Jesus. And what do church-going people who say they love the Lord Jesus, but he's not their Lord and their Savior, what do they need? They need Jesus. And that's exactly what we have in this particular passage. Jesus who comes along to his disciples and to us as well saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody 
Nobody comes to heaven except through me. We only speak what it is that he has spoken. We only shout what it is that he has shouted to us in our darkness and in our rebellion as he has saved us from ourselves and given us life abundant, eternal, and free. Friends, listen. It's all about the gospel that we live and the gospel that we proclaim because too many times the church of Jesus Christ is not living the gospel as he, he or she is preaching the gospel. For others who come alongside and they read passages like this, don't be troubled, but trust in me, believe in me. And then they look at our lives and they see anything but an absolute trust in Jesus Christ. They're not going to give any attention at all to what it is that we're saying if they're not able to see what it is that we are living. If the gospel has impacted your heart and your mind, captured you, you being dead in sin and transgressions. It has made you alive through Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Then you ought to be living it out in such a way that your life displays it and your words communicate it as well. Jesus gives us two people here. But before we get to those two people and the way they respond, he actually makes this bold claim. He actually at the beginning says a, a negative and a positive followed with the promise of I am the way and the truth and the life. He starts by saying do not let your hearts be troubled. Now let me put this in context for us since we're not moving through this book one verse at a time. In the, in the chapter, uh, chapters that just precede this particular chapter, Jesus now comes to his disciples and he says, I've been with you for three years but now I'm going to go away. And he's, he's celebrating the Passover feast that he gives the words of institution then to the Lord's Supper. And as they're sitting around the table, Jesus says, you know what, one of you is going to betray me. And they all kind of laugh it off, thinking, is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Who's, who's it going to be? And then suddenly Judas Iscariot gets up and he leaves. And perhaps they're all going, what's up with that? Where, where is Judas going? And as soon as Judas leaves, he points, Jesus then points over to the old timer, to Peter, and he says, you are going to betray me three times before the rooster crows tonight. And then perhaps he goes on to say, as he does, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to be leaving you now. I'm going to be leaving you. And perhaps they're thinking in their mind, now wait a minute. What do you mean you're leaving us? We have given up everything for you, Jesus. We've left our wives. We've left our children. We've left our fishing nets, our businesses to follow you. We've been following you for three years because we, you told us that you were the guy. And now suddenly you're, you're going to be leaving us? I understand why they're troubled. If we put that into context, wouldn't we be troubled as well? And yet Jesus comes along and he says, don't be troubled. There's the negative statement. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God or trust in God and trust also in me. He goes on to say that I am going and if I go, I am coming and when I come, I'm going to take. I am going to prepare a place for you. And not only to prepare a place for you, but to prepare you for the place. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I do that, I'm coming back. And I'm coming back to receive you to myself. And in receiving you to myself when I come back, I'm going to take you to that place. That place of glory. And there is only one way to get there. And that place is gotten to by me, through me. You'd only get there through Jesus. 
So he gives us this negative. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Oh, Christian, is your life revealing some kind of trouble to a watching world around you? i got to get up and go back to that nasty job that I hate so much today. Or i got to get up and I've got no job to go to, and I'm filled with trouble. Or I'm waking up with that spouse that's lying next to me, and we're at odds with one another, and we're not applying biblical principles. My my life is filled with anxiety and fear and trouble. My children are rebellious and wayward. The world is falling down. My 401k is, is dropping by the moment. Our lives oftentimes reveal nothing but trouble. Why would the world be watching us if we're coming alongside and saying, oh, our life is filled with joy and peace, happiness, no trouble at all because the gospel has been given. Here's the gospel that you need to respond to. And then the first thing that happens in a severe suffering kind of a way, our lives are filled with trouble. Jesus says, no, don't let your lives be filled with trouble. Believe in God and believe in me. And there is the positive. From the negative, do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, now trust in me. Trust in God or believe in God. Believe in me. John, the author of this passage, through divine inspiration of the work of the Holy Spirit, wrote it in Greek in the present imperative. Present tense, now, imperative, exclamation point. Keep on believing. Keep on trusting. You were doing it when things were good in your life, Jesus is saying. You were doing it when I was with you and I wasn't talking about leaving. Now keep on doing that. Even now that I'm telling you that I am leaving, there's no cause to be filled with trouble because I am going to prepare a place. And the only way for you to get to that place is through me. Notice too, friends, the end of verse 2. Last week when we looked at that passage and we looked at that difficult doctrine of limited atonement, particular redemption, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life not for everybody, I lay down my life for my sheep. He does the same thing here at the end of verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. Before I get to that, let me say this. Isn't that beautiful? Remember what Jesus did for a living? He grew up with Joseph, his father, who was a carpenter. And so he uses an illustration of carpentry. I'm going to go build you a mansion. The place where I'm going, uh, home, it says in the NIV, or rooms, I'm going to, some translation, I'm going to build you a mansion. And you're going to get to that mansion, inherit that mansion, only by me. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place, what? For you. I'm not going to prepare a place for everybody in the whole world. I am going to prepare a place for you, my sheep. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. I am going to prepare a place for you. Here's the point. To get to this place where God promises that we will go through his son, Jesus Christ, means we have a personal relationship. Jesus laid down his life for you and you and you and you and me. For those of us that have been given this gospel of grace, I am now in a relationship with this Savior. As we've been saying, he is not only my Savior who saved me from my sin, but he is the Lord and the master of my life. 
that lordship controversy, Lord and Savior, both in relationship with him. And so my question for you today, dear loved ones, is this. Does your life reflect that? Or does your life reflect nothing but anxiety and worry and trouble and fear and doubt and unhappiness, the lack of joy? There is one place that we are going, and we get to that one place through the Lord Jesus Christ. A bold statement, a bold claim that he makes, that we now make because he has made it to us and we make it to other individuals as well. A personal relationship with this Savior who said, I am going to prepare a place for you and in a very real way, I'm now preparing you for that place. There's no trouble in that place and there should be no trouble for us here. Now, I'm not saying that life doesn't throw us a curveball. I'm not saying that just... Go out there and be happy. Life is difficult. It is the, the way we respond to that difficulty. He is preparing us for the place, and the place is trouble-free. Trust in me. Keep on trusting in me, he says. Keep on believing in me. Now, this bold claim that Jesus makes is not only something that our culture today looks at and goes, wow, that's, that, that's difficult. But we have two individuals now. The passage goes on to give us a picture of two individuals that have some difficulty with that statement as well. The first one is Thomas. We find him beginning in verse 5. You know him as Doubting Thomas. That's what we refer to him as often. And we oftentimes jump to the end of John's Gospel in John chapter 20, verse 25, when we read that account where, we, where he gets the name Doubting Thomas. But before we get to that account, Thomas is actually mentioned by John in John chapter 11. The context there is that Lazarus, Jesus' friend, has died Jesus tarried before he went to Lazarus. And Jesus finally says to his disciples, all right, we need to go to Lazarus' house because Lazarus has fallen asleep and I need to go wake him up. And they say to him, what? If he's asleep, I mean, he's just going to wake up when the sun comes up tomorrow or whatever. He's going to wake up sooner or later. Why do we need to go? And Jesus says, no, he really is dead you know what, and it's a good thing that you're going to go with me to see what it is that I am going to do so that you will see and believe. And then we read that Thomas says, Doubting Thomas says, well, let's go with him so that we can die with him as well. And I think many times we read that passage and we think, Thomas is saying, well, let's go with Jesus and we'll die for Jesus. We'll die for our faith. I don't think so. I think Thomas was one of those people, you've met him, maybe you are one, <laughs> one of those people that always sees the glass half empty, always finds the negative in everything. Negative, 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 always, always, always. And I think what Thomas was saying is, he's dead? He's your friend. And he's dead? You tarried, you didn't go? He's dead, and now you want us to go? Well, yeah, okay, wow, whoop-de-doo, let's go, and we can die with him as well. We can die with Lazarus, because Jesus didn't go to die. He didn't go to Lazarus' house to die, but Lazarus was already dead. I think the context there is 
that Thomas is saying, wow, I thought, I thought you were giving us some beautiful words, wonderful words of life, and all you're telling us is he's dead. And now I guess we're going to go die too. Whoop-de-doop-de. But then we get to John chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus is risen from the dead, remember? And all of the disciples are in the upper room. And Jesus comes through the door, not opening it, but passes through the door. And there he is, peace be with you. And then they believe. They see the resurrected Savior in the glorified body. But Thomas is not there. And he says, go and tell. And they go to Thomas and they say, we have seen the risen Lord. And Thomas says what? No, 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 no. Unless I see with my eyes. Unless I get to touch those scars in his side and his hands. With my own hands, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas. What had Thomas done? What had he done? He had taken his eyes off of Christ. He had put them on the things, the events that were right in front of him. The disappointments in life that were right in front of him. He took his eyes off the Savior and put them on the disappointing circumstances that were right in front of his life, his eyes. In his book, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis wrote these words. Listen, without the way, there is no going Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. That is why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Where is your focus, beloved? Is your focus only on the disappointing circumstances that are right in front of you, so much so that your life is now filled with trouble, with anxiety, with fear. You're not applying the biblical principles to your life and to the lives of the ones that you live in harmony with or are supposed to live in harmony with, and so your life is filled with trouble. Or is your focus only getting rid of the trouble so that you can enjoy fun things in life, things that you want your way as you have dictated to yourself? You have taken your eyes off of your Savior the Savior who has promised to go to prepare a place for you. He says, turn your eyes back to me, the person, the one true and the living God. I am the way and the truth and the life. You know him, my friends, because he has revealed himself to you, just like he did to Thomas. He appeared to Thomas, remember? And he said, blessed are you, because you have believed and you have seen, but blessed greater are those who will never see me and yet still believe. You know him. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the things of God are like this, scales in front of our eyes. It's foolishness to us until the Spirit moves and those scales fall and we see our Savior for who he is, the very one who is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And make no mistake about it, my friends, look at it there. The English captures the Greek very well, and that is this. The definite article, uh, definite articles are there in all three. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the way, the way to the freedom of sin, the way to the freedom from bondage to our sin. I am the truth. I am the holy, faithful, 
loving, gracious Savior who says, I have prepared a place for you. I am the life, the guarantee of redemption and reconciliation with your heavenly Father. Sin separated you from that Father, but I have brought you back together in me, the way, the truth, and the life. That sounds so narrow, but it's what Jesus says. It is the gospel. It ought to be the gospel now that we are living. He is the way. I, I am no longer in bondage to my sin because of the absolute truth, the certainty that he seals to my mind by the power of his spirit. Now knowing him, he has reconciled me with the Father, one with the Father because I am one with the Savior. Isn't that what he says? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now if you're in me, you're one with the Father. It's what we know to be true because he has caused the scale to fall from our eyes. But then we get this other guy, verse 8. Philip. Oh, Philip. Lord, will you show us the Father? That would be enough for us. Can't you just imagine what Jesus is thinking? Oh! This is Philip. Chapter 1, verse 43. Philip is the one that runs to Nathanael and says, I have seen the one that Moses was writing about. I have seen the one that Moses wrote about the proto-uengelion. There is one coming to crush the head of the serpent. I've seen him. You need to come see him too. Philip, he's the same guy we read later in chapter 6 of John's Gospel when the scripture clearly says that Jesus wanting to test Philip to see if he had faith, that he was growing in that faith and believing Seeing the crowds coming, Jesus turns to Philip and says, Philip, look at all of those people. How, how are we ever going to feed all of those 5,000 people? And Philip says, Lord, it would take eight months worth of wages. You need to send them away. And Jesus says, watch this. Yeah, that's Philip. And so Jesus has now been with them for three years doing all of these things, wouldn't you just imagine that Jesus would want to turn to him and say, what? I fed 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves? You saw it. You've seen what I've done for three years. And now you want to ask me to show you the Father? Philip, listen, buddy, you're looking at the Father. When you look at me, you look at the Father because I am one with the Father. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. And I have come to make you one in me and with the Father as the way, the truth, and the life. Philip had taken his eyes off of Christ just like Thomas did, just like we do. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Keep on believing in God. Keep on believing in Christ, the very one who not only gives us the ability to know him, but now gives us eyes to see him. And we see him every time we open this manual, this book, this instruction guide, that we put all the pieces together. It's right here. Look at how he goes on to say in verse 15, the passage that follows our text this morning, Jesus gives the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says... I am going, don't be troubled, but I am going because it's actually going to be better for you. Because when I go, the comforter is coming, and the comforter is going to dwell inside you. 
And he's going to dwell inside you, therefore sealing to your mind the things that you know. And then every time you open the word and read about the Savior, opening your eyes to see. The Spirit at work empowering us to know and to see. Every time we open the scripture, every time we live the gospel of grace, every time we communicate that gospel of grace. Word and deed together. And what will happen when we do that? Jesus says we will actually do even greater things. Verse 12, you're going to do what I have been doing and you will actually do greater things than these. What does that mean? Does that mean we're going to perform miracles? No, it doesn't. Because actually the word translated things in English is not even present in the Greek. Jesus says, you're going to do what I do. And when you start doing them, empowered by the work of the Spirit who boils up within you like streams of living water, you're going to do even greater. Because it's not just about right here and right now, Jesus is saying. I am going so that this gospel can leave Jerusalem and go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, and I'm going to do it through people like you. Hence, we live the gospel and we gossip the gospel. If the gospel has been given to you, dear loved one, you can't help but being completely changed by the work of the Spirit alive and well within you, and you can't shut up talking about it. It's how God is bringing the masses to that one place through this one person, the way, the truth, and the life. A bold claim, bold enough to save you, bold enough to save all of the elect, for whom Jesus has died. Sinclair Ferguson told this story. It's a wonderful story. I want to tell you about it. He said a friend of his was doing business in New York. In his last night there, he went to a restaurant. And he had a wonderful meal by himself. And when he finished the meal, he asked if he could speak to the owner of the restaurant. The owner came up. And he said, I just want to simply say, my meal, was, my, my meal was very, very good, very tasty, savory, uh, the spices were perfect, everything was wonderful. But I got to tell you, that coffee, that coffee is absolutely exceptional. That is the best coffee I have ever had in my life. The man looked around a little bit, knowing that he was in town and leaving town, said, I'm going to share something with you that I've never told anybody else. I cut corners on the freshness of my vegetables. I cut corners on the primeness of my meat. But I will cut no corners on the cost of my coffee. Because the very last thing that touches the tongue and the lips of the people that are sitting in my tables is that coffee. And if it's exceptional, it brings them back every single time. The man said he just looked in the dining room, people taking one last sip and then getting up and walking out with that last bit of savory taste on their taste buds, that exceptional coffee. Jesus is about to head to the Heavenly Father after dying for our sin and he leaves this savory flavor right on our lips and in our tongues. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. 
Let that just savor on your tongue now as you live it and then as you speak it. What a gospel. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a joy it is. What a joy it is to know that we are yours, bought with a price, not because of anything we have done, not because of our good deeds. We are not good. There is none righteous, no, not one. And yet, Father, you would call us savingly to yourself through this gospel that is found only in one individual. There is, in fact, no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved except for the name of Jesus. A bold claim, but a bold claim made by a loving, gracious Father. So, Father, would you seal that to our hearts and minds. Now that we are one in Christ and one with you, reconciled, redeemed, how we love to proclaim it, would you now let us proclaim it in word and deed. And then, Father, we would take you at your word, that we would do greater things, that through us, the saints specifically of Redeemer Church, that you would use us to live and speak, to gossip this gospel that there would be a line at the font to be baptized that you would add to our number daily, those that are actually being saved. Do greater things for the glory of yourself, please, we pray. Amen. Let's respond, friends, by giving our gifts. Our ushers are coming to collect our morning offering. It's our opportunity to be sacrificial, to make an eternal investment, to give to this glorious gospel that we take into the world. If you're seated on the inside row, let me ask you to respond by grabbing that black pad under the seat in front of you. Print all of the information requested there and then pass that pad down to everyone seated on your row so that everyone has a, an opportunity to give us a record of their attendance. If you are not receiving the weekly emails that go out for worship preparation and announcements, if you'd like to receive those, simply give us your email address and we'll be happy to add you to the list. Also, let's remain seated and let's sing together hymn number 708, O love that wilt not let me go, 708, let's respond in song. <laughs>